Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 237. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Derek. How are you? You know, I'm okay. And I think the market's okay. It seemed like it was okay on Friday, but I am hearing a lot of talk about the next shoe to drop. So here's here's my little, I'm not going to rant. I'm not going to get on a soapbox. But everybody who seems to go on, maybe CNBC, the pundits, they want to poke holes and tell you why the market's going to fall. And by the way, you and I don't know what's going to happen in the markets. That's where we buy and we hedge. We don't try and pick tops and bottoms. But we like to have a little discussion. So Jay, the, the latest thing I've started to hear, and I don't know if you've heard this, is the idea of real yields rising. And real yields, basically, for those who are unfamiliar with it, or those who are and want a refresher, it's if you take something like, the two-year treasury or the 10-year treasury. And let's say the 10-year treasury was yielding 4%. I mean, you buy a fresh off the rack treasury, buy it at 100 or spend 1000 bucks, yielding 4%. And let's say inflation was at 2%. Well, it's not exactly 4 minus 2. There's a little math involved, but it's about a 2% real yield. So Jay, what I've been hearing is 10-year yields are are starting to edge up. Um, I don't know if that's a problem or not. Well, look, I mean, I, I don't, you got to keep these things in perspective, right? There's been, <laughs> I, I almost feel like, wait a minute, people now can get paid for owning bonds is a problem. Like, wait, isn't that the whole point to hold a bond is to have a safe source of income, at least treasuries, right? I don't, I don't know. I'm with you. I don't know why that is considered a problem. Um, right. I mean, is it because people think, oh, the market is going to what go down and rates are going to go up? I, you know, and rates are going to go down because they're high now, right? I guess if they're high and people think they're high, that higher than they should be, they'll think they'll go down, which means bonds are going to go up, which people, you know, flight to safety into bonds. I, you know, I think that's a long way to get to the problem, quite frankly. I don't, I mean, I don't, I'm not concerned. Uh, the market has been really, uh, open to digesting higher rates for longer. Uh, I'm not sure where the probabilities are, right? If we still are, you know, last I looked, we were kind of still even for maybe one more rate hike this year. I didn't, uh, I didn't check as of Friday, but uh, it's yeah, Derek. I don't, I don't know why this is such a problem. Like it's the whole point. Like oh, now it's finally good. The maybe the only thing I would say is why it's. A problem is not for a fundamental reason, but for the mechanical reason of people would say, you know what, I'm okay taking some money off the table and sitting in bonds. Now there is an alternative, right? You, you remember the whole argument we made from, you know, 2017 all the way through 2021, there is no alternative to, to stock. So that's the whole Tina, right? There is no alternative. Well, now there is an alternative. And if real bond, if bonds have a, have, you know, you can earn a real interest rate, Perhaps that pulls some liquidity out of, you know, out of stocks, but it's only liquidity that's going to come back at some point. Right. So I don't I don't think fundamentally it's signaling a problem. I mean, think about so I, I, maybe I'll pause there. Right. And because and you're the history buff, like what are, have there been times where rates have been, you know, the real rate has been this high and there hasn't been a problem? It's the exception to the rule when yields are you know, we have negative real yields. Um, you know, you look at 2012, you look at, you know, from 2020 up until um, you know, really end of 21. But Jay, I mean, right now, according to, now I'm pulling this up in the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, uh, our friends over there. Well, we don't really know them, but um, this is their site. And the source, by the way, is the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. I want to make sure and give Cleveland some, uh, some due there. The real yield on the 10-year is about 1.6% right now. That's the, the yield above inflation. But Jay, you go back to one of my favorite periods to reference because that's really the last time we had uh, really high, you know, low, higher for longer, and that's the 1990s. And I think we, the average real yield in the 90s was something like you know, 3%. It went up everywhere from, I don't know, 4% down to... Uh, 
And you might remember, or those people in the audience might remember, the markets went up in the 90s. You know, 94, in the 94 up until March of 2000 was an unbelievable run. And by the way, you should get a real yield. Like, why are you investing in a bond if you lose buying power every year? Like, this is what you want. You want a real yield. Like, give me some real money. Yeah, I, it's again, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm with you, Derek. I don't think this is a real problem. I love, I love that we, you continue to find uh, uh, mirrors of, you know, 1994 and that period, right? Which you've been talking about now, shoot, what, nine months? A year? At months, least, yeah, like you've been talking about how this is, you know, 2023 could be a 1994 type scenario. And I don't know, at what point do you get to claim victory? Because I think so far you're pretty spot on. We're, you know, eight months through, four months to go. So far, so good. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not concerned. I think, you know, those that are looking at bonds as kind of the, um, by the way, there's plenty of indicators in the bond market that have had a good, uh, level of accuracy, the one we always talk about is the inverted curve, right? And that has historically been really good at kind of predicting recessions and market dips. But, you know, we've had an inverted curve now for quite some time. And look, there's just maybe one of those times where it doesn't work. I mean, eventually the curve will uninvert, revert, uninvert, you know, go back to a normal, uh, normal state steepness that it has where near-term rates are lower than long-term rates. But we're not sure how that's going to come either, right? Is, is it because the long end of the curve will go up or the short end of the curve will go down? But I think those that are using bonds as kind of the signal for trouble um, probably have to expect that this year bonds are not going to be your signal. It just seems like everything that historically had a high level of accuracy, this is going to be one of those years where it just isn't right. By the way, in the 10-year, the, the inverted yield curve, so that, of course, is the three-month treasury against the 10-year treasury. And Cam Harvey's the one who created the paper, who created the, the you know, inverted yield curve. Uh, Tobias Carlisle, who does a, a value podcast, he points out all the time that the median time to, uh, to recession when you have an inverted curve would put us uh, October of this year it would actually put us October 25th of this year as sort of the median. And the far end would be like January. I think it's January of next year. I believe that's what he said. So if it's going to work, you'd say, okay, well, we're not at the median of all the other ones or, or, or the middle, right? Am I using that right? The, the sort of the average of when a recession would start. Yeah, the middle point, right? If you laid them all out on a line, the middle one, doesn't matter, the, the one that's in the middle, right? Equal number above, yeah. equal number below. That's the median. Yep. So I, I don't know. Um, the other thing, I'll, the only thing I'll point out on real yields is remember that the Fed had kept ri- raising rates, and the real yield was lower than it is now. And so one could argue that as real yields go up, the effectiveness or the impact of the Fed's uh, raising of rates is actually stronger now because real yields are higher. But I'll let you, this is one of these things, Jay, I'll let you know when it matters or when it has done something. Uh, but I quite frankly think real yields are fine. I think they're fine. And I'll probably be wrong next week. But that's why we don't pick markets. We buy and we hedge, right, Jay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spe- speaking of hedging, like, how do you feel we came through August and now we're starting September? Right. Like everybody talks about September and the, and the roughness. And I we talked about this last week, how we'd start to see, you know, on the on the, the, the media channels that, you know, they talk about how September is historically the worst month of the year. How do you how do you feel we're starting out? I mean, Apple's starting out. Not great. No, <laughs> Apple the right. definitely, definitely showing some cracks here. Right. So you're right. Like the first it was weird. It was a short week. Right. We had four days. Um, I guess you would count the Friday before that. So we really didn't get, you know, I guess we had five trading days, the first through the, uh, you know, through the eighth. Um, yeah, I don't know, it doesn't feel strong. It feels like maybe the August trend could continue. Not a prediction there, but it's just, you know, does September end up being, you know, the trouble month? Last year, it was nasty, right? Like I'm, I, you know, I was just going back to take a look at what happened in uh, last year in September. It wasn't the nastiest month, right? But uh, when I look what the S&P did, 
right? Looks like we went from, I don't know, almost for 39.55. And that's when we saw almost all the way down the way that September ended was at uh, 35.85. So, you know, like almost a, you know, 400 point drop over 10%. September can be nasty, right? I don't know if it matters if you get two nasty Septembers in a row. I didn't do any studying on that, any details on that. But September can be a little little bumpy, right? So, you know, maybe that just also lines up with the, with the bond conversation. I'm not sure. You know, I think sometimes all of this talk about this is the worst month, worst month, that's the worst month, it doesn't do the general investing public any good because that implies that you're going to time something. And although September historically is the worst month, there are good years. There are years that aren't as great. And I also don't know how many, you know, if we took out the biggest drops, let's say, what, what that would end up. But it's the same thing as sell in May and go away. I can't tell you how many years I've heard, you know, when I used to be on the other side of the business and people would say, I'm selling everything in May. And I said, why do you do that? Well, he said, everyone knows that sell in May and go away and then you buy uh, at the end of the summer. You know, I don't know. I mean, we know how difficult that is. You've got to be right twice. You've got to be right on when you get out and you got to be right on when you get in. So, but yeah, I mean, it ties it back to hedging. If you're hedged, okay. If you have some big blow up, you know, you have a floor in the portfolio, but if markets do okay. And by the way, I will tell you that the seasonality studies I've seen are actually pointing to a good end of the year. Now, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, this is, uh, pe- people have all sorts of opinions and history may rhyme, but it doesn't necessarily repeat itself. That's the quote I always hear people saying, so I'll say it. But Jay, I mean, when we look at implied volatilities in the market, and actually, uh, I also pulled up the high yield spread, the spread between, let's say, uh, you know, what the yield is on high yield bonds and what treasuries are, you know, it's only 3.9 right now, meaning you get an additional 390 basis points or 3.9% additional above holding treasuries. This is not, I mean, this is sort of back down to a bottom of a a period if you were looking at a chart. Um, And I think, you know, we did an overlay of the high yield spread and implied volatility. I suspect there'd be a lot of correlation there. But high yield spreads are not saying there's an issue. And some people might argue, well, treasury yields have come up faster than high yield yields have increased, but it's not saying, not saying there's anything interesting there. And then Jay, implied volatility has been getting crushed of late. Is crushed too hard of a word, Jay? I mean, I, I, w- I would say for, no, it's not too harsh of a word. You could say crushed on volatility. It's almost like, it's a double negative. Like when you crush fear, it's like, oh, is that a, that's a good thing, right? You could, I think you could say that. I mean, it's continuing to trend down, right? I guess there's no like really major, major smashing of it, right? It didn't go from 30 to 10 in two weeks, but it is definitely on the downside, which by the way is completely opposite of, you know, what you would, you know, expect if there really was a lot of speculation on a downside move in the month of September, right? You would actually see that reflected in uh, people buying options for protection, right? That's kind of the normal spiel. But, you know, Derek, we don't, you know, you and I talk about implied volatility quite a bit. Have we ever really kind of explained people what that really means, the implied volatility of options? Well, we may have had, we may have done that, but uh, who's to say everyone has listened to every minute of every one of our 236 previous podcasts? So, you don't think so? Okay. So maybe, maybe it's I don't think so. I'll let you start and I'm going to fill in after you, uh, after you start. So yeah. we've got an implied okay. volatility. Let, let's just say what, what's the, here, I'm going to make it easy for you. And later this will, this will, uh, let's say we have a, an implied volatility of about 16%. So we'll, go Jay. Oh, oh, you really want me to get to the math. So the an implied volatility of 16% uh, t- makes us believe that one standard deviation percent of the time, which is about 68% of the time, the market will move 1%. So what that means around, you know, at or below 1%. So maybe I, I probably jumped to the equation too soon. So it's essentially when you say implied volatility, it is the 
excess that people are willing to pay over, say, the intrinsic value uh, of, of an option because they have some sort of a speculative idea that the market is going to move. Option pricing has all kind of components in it, right? Uh, volatility, one of them. Time, another one. The moneyness, meaning how far in the money an option is. Uh, things like interest rates. So there's all sorts of things kind of baked into an option price. But when you look at them all, they're all very easy to define, right? When you look at the components, the number of days for an option expiration, that's known, that's easy. No, don't have hard math to do that. You know how far an option is in the money. That's okay. That's strike minus the underlying price. But that other component, why there's more, we like to call it the juice in an option or the extrinsic value, is based on the likelihood uh, that uh, that the underlying will move. And so if somebody's willing to pay more, it implies that they're expecting a larger move, right? That concept of implies, it's a forward-looking data point. And I like to say it's the speculative portion of an option. Uh, others might say it's the emotional part of an option's price, right? I, I, there's only really a couple things in the marketplace where you can really see the fear and greed emotion. One of them is an, is in the implied volatility concept, the implied volatility of options. So as that implied volatility grows, it means that there's more speculation that the underlying asset will move. So to Derek's point, that by the way, then this has a probability like a, like a standard deviation or like a, a bell curve that we all learned in our stats class um, that then you could look and based on you know how much implied volatility there is in the option, it gives you an idea of the potential move or the expected move of the underlying asset. Obviously, it's no guarantee. Nobody knows right exactly what, what an underlying is going to do from day to day when you're looking forward. But that kind of implied move is in there. And so when Derek gave me the 16 number, essentially, it tells us that the market is expecting that asset to move around 1%, right? Uh, 68% of the time. Right. That's kind of what it's telling us. It'll move there. By the way, you can have a 2% move in that scenario. That would be what's known as a two standard deviation, right? So standard deviations capture kind of the, the back to the stats concept. Uh, it kind of captures the amount of movement that you expect uh, based on what's implied in the options market. And usually we call a two standard dev move to be unusual. To the second standard deviation is something like 95.5%. So 4.5% of the time, that doesn't, 95% of the time, it doesn't happen. So only 4.5% does it. So all those data points kind of work into, you know, the options. And we like to just abbreviate it all by referencing the IV or the implied volatility of options. That gives us an idea of how much movement the market is predicting over some period of time. Generally, we go 30 days, but that's the idea of implied volatility. So I don't know. I probably went deeper, Derek, but there you go. Where do you want to pick up from that? No, that's good. All right. Well, let me, let me ask you a question that someone in the audience might have, but I'll ask it for them. And that is, you just gave an example of a, a 1% based upon the implied volatility of the option, the options market saying, we think the bell curve 68% of the time, we're going to see a move of 1%, but that's not necessarily 1% up or 1% down. So that's sort of the, the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It does it's just in there. Like if you think of the width of that bell curve, it's it ranges to the plus one, minus one. Right. It's not up or down. You could have, you know, implied volatility speculating to an upside move just as much as a downside move. We see that in some individual stocks, like uh, NVIDIA, for example, recently has had that around its earnings, right? There's a lot of implied volatility in the options going into earnings because of the potential upside move, right? Yeah, and that's the other thing too, is that it's probably, we won't get into this on in this discussion, but the bell curve might have a different shape where, and really ever since 1987, we call it you know, the volatility smile, uh, but actually it might slant and the options market might price, let's say, the put side differently than the call side differently or different parts of the chains. Uh, that gets a little too confusing for our discussion, but Jay, you mentioned Nvidia. Actually, before before you do that, um, I want to sort of just explain really quick why it is that I said the number sixteen, and why immediately you knew what I was doing, and we came to that expected one percent uh, range. 
The reason is the implied volatility is an annualized rate. But there are usually about 251, 252 uh, trading days in a year. And if you think about, or 250, depends on the holidays and everything. But if, if you take the square root of those number of days, it's like, you know, 15.875. But traders call it the rule of 16. In fact, if you talk to ex-floor traders on the SIBO, they'd say, we always just did it by 16. So if something has a 32 implied volatility divided by 16, it's two. You say, okay, well, it's a 2% implied expected move, one standard deviation move that day. So that's a little of the, the inside baseball, the math there. All right. Now you mentioned NVIDIA, and I think that's a good one to use. I was just going to say before that, it's a good tool for people to really understand what the options market is you know, looking forward to, right? Like you just said, we got a 16 VIX, which is the implied volatility of the S&P 500. Generally, it's, I mean, there's, there's a math equation there, but let's just shorthand it and say that's the IV of the S&P. Um, so if you see a 16, you know that the movements are going to be fairly muted. You have a 32, you know that, hey, look, I mean, things are going to move. We should expect a 2% move any given day when we have a 32 on the VIX, right? So it's a way that it's kind of a way to cheat uh, as to understand how much uh, uh, the options market is pricing. And so you will see that number drop, like the VIX drop well before, or move, I should say, well before it's really digested by the economy on what is coming, right? So the VIX is going to be a much more kind of uh, sensitive reflection of the options market uh, prediction uh, versus, say, you know, if all of a sudden you're waiting for a jobs report or you're waiting for some sort of fundamental data point to get reported or even, you know, you're trying to wait for earnings on a stock, right? Like all of that's a really good way to kind of, you know, maybe get to the answer quickly at least understanding what the options market is telling you is going to happen. By the way, the options market is wrong all the time. Don't get me wrong. It is not a Bible that is, you know, you have to subscribe to it because it's the only way that it turns out. The options market misses things all the time. Uh, usually the way that we measure that is we say, what was the volatility the market was predicting and what was the volatility that occurred? And that, by the way, we call historical volatility. That there's no guessing at. Right, historical volatility. You know what happened in the last 30 days. You can do a very simple standard deviation calculation. And hey, did we really have a 16 standard deviation or not? So we compare those numbers all the time. About 80% of the time, the option market is right, which that's actually pretty good. But still, it means 20% of the time, the options market had no idea something was coming. It just wasn't priced in. So anyway, use it as a potential volatility predictor or it's better than average? How's that sound? I'll tell you a quick story about how implied volatility sometimes tells the story. Uh, you might remember our uh, old uh, colleague. Uh, yeah, I was going to say a different word, but no, our old colleague, John Gold. John and I used to run the Options Huddle, which is a webcast at TD. And uh, I think you were on there too, Jay, a few times. But what, he used to company? go through... At TD Ameritrade. What's that? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Schwab. Oh, that's all right. A little inside there, guys, right? TD Ameritrade did its main conversion. A lot of clients did their final conversion from yes. uh, TD to Schwab. Sorry, that was a little... Well, actually... You and I you know, probably shed a little tear last weekend when they did the conversion. Well, I mean, it was, you know, went from Ameritrade. Now, I worked at Schwab years and years ago, but, you know, Ameritrade what turned into TD Ameritrade when TD Waterhouse uh, did the merger and now now Schwab. So, but yeah. All right. So, so John and I so used you're to, talking about the, yeah, the morning huddle. Go ahead. Yeah. So John and I used to go through and John used to bring up the, the great, the, the, these, uh, he would have a screen. He had some software and he, he would look at the biggest jumps in implied volatility but there'd be no change really in the underlying stock. And I remember there was one on, uh, I think it was Anheuser-Busch. Do they own Busch Gardens? I think so. They? Yeah. 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 So there was, yeah. there was you know, it's not exactly a, a big volatility stock. So John pulls this one up and, and we were talking afterwards. I said, I wonder what that is. And I'm like, nobody, they're a big company. Nobody's merging with them, right? Nobody's buying them. And John's, you know, anyway. So... 
a lawsuit comes out like three days later, a big lawsuit. Um, I, I think it was an injury or something at, at one of the, the maybe Bush Gardens, you know. And I remember talking to John afterwards. I'm like, the, market, the options market knew. They knew ahead of the general public. I mean, so a lot of times that's a, a tell when you see implied volatility jump. Not all the time, but certainly it is. So, Yeah. I mean, we, we like to say sometimes the options market can give you insight into the equity market, right? There's uh, firms that their whole research is based on what's going on in the options market. And they look for what? Unusual volume, spikes in volatility, all that kind of stuff. Because maybe somebody's got an inside track on something. I mean, that's to me, that's a hard way to invest. And that's a trading approach if you want to go that way. But yeah, you're almost like, oh, somebody knows something. So let me just piggyback on that. That's, you know, not always, not that you know anything, right? You're, it's fine to do it. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's, you know, you're guessing on based on somebody else's guess. Right? That's a hard way to do Also on the broadcast, Jay, I will tell you that um, we clearly called the, uh, uh, the 2008 crash, because I don't know if you know this, but the carry trade, the Japanese yen Kiwi, the New Zealand uh, dollar, that carry trade, that pair broke down before the market broke down. But implied volatility spiked in the currency markets ahead of that breakdown. I remember that was some massive jump. And that was another one of those, huh, wonder, wonder what's going on there. So anyway. All right. So yeah. Let me uh, let me take us back in here. I do have a, I, I was going to tell another story, but I'll, I'll hold off till later. So you mentioned Nvidia. Let's get to Nvidia. Nvidia, uh, right before earnings, and so this would have been what's the date on here? I don't know. You know, twenty uh, fifth of August. Yeah, something like that, right? So yeah. So NVIDIA had an implied volatility of 70% going into earnings. A little bit before earnings, it was about 76%. So 70%. And what that means is you take the 70% divided by 16, and I should have done the math ahead of time, but that's going to that's gonna give you the implied move that the options market is expecting. It's actually 4.75% is the one standard deviation move. And I'm, I'm always reminded, you know, years ago, and you and I dealt with, um, we used to educate options traders, you know, go around the country and do that. And people would always ask, hey, why don't I just buy a straddle, which is a, a strategy that's you buying a call and buying a put at the same strike, the same date expiration, right before earnings. Okay, that's fine. But you know, the market is already anticipating an implied move post earnings. So, that's one of those things that's already priced in. But Jay, we see this again and again in earnings. Uh, let me let you talk about that. And then I think we should, maybe NVIDIA is a good one to use when it's not a, we're not saying a buy or sell it or anything like that. You know, who knows where it's going? Uh, but this is a good one to look at. There's a lot of volatility in its volatility as well. Yeah, that's the volatility of its volatility, right? The change of its volatility. It's very, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes it almost looks like, I like to call them like, you know, top hats, right? Where the volatility is going along, it goes straight up for a period of a few weeks and then it goes straight down. And that's usually around earnings or around some other big announcement. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, the volatility of NVIDIA has, over the last year has been around the 40, right? 35 to 45. That's kind of been the range. So what does that mean? Well, we just told you what a 32 volatility means. So you should expect NVIDIA to move more than you know two percent every day two and a quarter percent and that so when we look at that and by the way at a price of 400 where it goes running 455 right you're talking about nine dollars a day right that you should expect nvidia to move right that's kind of the general gist and when you look at say a one-day option well there aren't one-day options but let me look at next friday's options like if you look at those options um if you wanted to do that straddle example you just said, where you buy a call and you buy a put, right? That's going to run you somewhere in the range of $18, $19. So we just said you could get, you know, a nine point move in a single day. That's what the options market is projecting. You would need to have a net, you know, direction of two days uh, for you, right? So out of five days, you'd need to have, you know, uh, you know, this move of more than 18 points to break even on that straddle, right? Because you have to 
offset the whole cost of the calls and the puts, which is a fairly decent move. But that's one of the things that you see when it comes to the pricing of options, how it lines up with uh, uh, with, with, with the with the implied volatility. Obviously, they're all linked. So those are the kinds of things that you look at. And if you were to say, OK, well, how far away is you know 18 points on this at 455? Let's say you're at the 472 half on this side. And all the way down, what's that through the right? Three, four thirty-seven on the downside. You know, those options are much, much less expensive. They have like, you know, an extrinsic cost of two bucks. So there are a lot of different ways that you can play these these volatility uh uh situations where, hey, I think it's gonna move, but it I look, I don't know if it's gonna be too expensive for it to really move, you know, over the week that's 18 points. You know, one of the things that some people do is they'll go out of the money on both of those, right? Pay two bucks for the put, two bucks for the call. And if NVIDIA starts to approach those, those will expand in price fairly quickly. Obviously, the other one losing. So you still need to have in that movement. But, you know, this is when, when we watch what's going on with options, whether you're long or short, by the way, you could sell calls against these same exact same positions, right? You could say, oh, the market's telling me it should go up to 472. Maybe those are the calls that I'll sell if I want to try to run a covered call strategy. Or if you're using a short put as kind of the quasi-limited order, maybe you should be selling the 437s, get a little premium because the market says that's where it's likely to go all the way down. Maybe that's where you get your entry point. So you can use that, you know, that those data points um, when it comes to you know actively managing uh, an, an option strategy. And again, these are these are very, I'm talking about stuff that's very handsy, very trading focused, not investing focused. Most of the stuff that Derek and I do has to do with longer term investing. But if you have your, you know, 10, 15 percent, uh, uh, I'll call it your idiosyncratic risk money or that bucket of your assets that you want to trade with, things like this, when you kind of can look at the IV, look at how the options are priced, can kind of help you determine the type of strategy you want to take for a stock. When I look at NVIDIA, it's, and, and I'll mention this too, uh, here's a little additional insight into, into how, you know, the expectations of the market. We've been talking about the one day implied move, but options uh, aren't just on each single day. I think you just mentioned NVIDIA doesn't have, uh, you know, zero DTE options every day. But if I go out and I look at over the next 49 days, and 49 will be, it'll be apparent why I chose that in a second, I can say, what's the implied volatility of the options that are around the 49-day to expiration? And they have an implied volatility, which is annualized. But now I'm talking about 49 days. So I can do that same calculation, take the IV divided by you know around 16 or 15.875, but then I can multiply it by the square root of 49, which is the number of days, which happens to be seven, which is why I did 49, Jay, because it's a nice, easy number to remember. I got gotcha. you. No, that's great. So, Smart. you know, if, you're, if your annualized number is, let's say, 32, 32 divided by 16 is two times seven is 14. So basically over the next 49 days, in my made up example there, you know, one standard deviation move is 14%. So, you know, there is... The reason why earnings are really interesting is that we see in the very near-term options that implied volatility really jumps up because earnings four times a year, one of the things that if companies beat by a lot or miss by a lot or say something wrong, it's an unknown. So that's one of the reasons why right before earnings, you see that pop up and there's no free lunch in Wall Street. So it's not like, you know, everyone knows this could be a big driver. So it's just one of those things. Jay, Tesla is another one I think that's kind of interesting. And to, to give some perspective, you know, the S&P 500, the implied volatility, and this isn't in a particular option date or chain, is call it about 13.3%. But Tesla, if I pull that one up, it's, uh, is it still 50%? Yeah, still 50% implied volatility. So you're starting to see that the market expects Tesla to move more than the S&P 500. And that's to be expected because we know that uh, historical volatilities on single names are much greater than when you have a diversified basket of stuff that's in there. It's one of the reasons why for uh, we do it for advisors and their clients and, and individuals. 
Uh, people who have concentrated stock, people with low cost basis who know they have a lot of risk in a single stock, and we hedge around that and generate income off it. But Jay, when we see Tesla at uh, a 50 IV versus the market, I mean, naturally say, okay, of course, the market expects Tesla to move more, right? Yeah, and and uh, you, and and it and it's interesting sometimes how you can see in the option chain there's kind of different levels of implied volatility based on what's coming up, right? So, for example, uh, when you if you were to look out uh, when and the, you know I don't think they've announced the earnings yet, but if you go out into the October range, right, for options on Tesla, the implied volatility goes up even today, right? Even for trading today. Buying options on a daily basis, if that was really something that you did the math on, is less expensive in the short term versus, say, out to the time period when it has uh, earnings built into the into the option price. So all of those things kind of work themselves in. So, right, you said, you know, at 50, you know, that is like a 3% move per day, right? Just to, I rounded to 48, right? 48 divided by 16. We should expect Tesla to move. Uh, by you know three percent a day, and if you were to look at again like those near term options, like the one week options, and buy the straddle, right? It's about eleven points for a straddle right now. So at your two forty eight period, uh, two forty eight, which is where we closed on Friday, you know you're talking something like two sixty on the upside, and you know let's say take this out two thirty seven and a half would be the strike you take on the downside. Right. So, again, that's kind of the range that the market is expecting it to move. Um, that's in one week. And uh, so this is a scenario where 11 points, right, divided by the stock price, uh, which in this case is 248, is 4%. So, you know, you if you were going to buy that straddle, you need a 4% move either way. We just said that's, you know, 3% is expected to move every day. So there's this little disconnect sometimes, the reason why I'm pointing this out, where um, you may not, the options may be cheaper than the implied volatility based on, like the average implied volatility based on your time horizon, right? So the implied volatility for the one-week options are more like in the 40 range, and like Derek said, on the longer term, it's closer to 50. So maybe I'd say 45, 44, 45 for the one-week range. So why am I telling you this? Well, the thing is, when it comes to options, you finding where options are mispriced is usually where that's where you find your opportunity, right? If an option is cheap, meaning if it's you know the what the implied move of the price of the option is you know greater or let's say less than what the IV overall for the chain is telling you, it tells you like, hey, maybe this is time where you're long the option. If an option's expensive that even if against its overall implied volatility, the options are implying a bigger move on that short time period, then that's one that maybe you sell options, right? We like to sell options when they're expensive, buy them when they're cheap. Doesn't mean you you can't lose on those, right? You could still certainly lose. Sometimes the options market is even wronger than you think. But it's it's interesting to look at that. And then we like to compare that to the historical volatility. So Again, how accurate is the options market on Tesla? A good way to judge that is what's the implied volatility versus what actually happened. Map those things together and see if the option market is paying you for the risk you're taking. Sometimes it's better to be long options. Sometimes it's better to be short options. But, you know, use that information if you're kind of really digging into, you know, taking a speculative bet one way or another. Not something that we do with our main investing money again, right? But we're talking about options. We're talking about trading. So applied volatility is a tool you use there for those kinds of tra- transactions. Jay, do you remember? And and you know, we we mentioned Nvidia. We mentioned you know Tesla, and Nvidia being a seventy-five, seventy implied volatility right before earnings. I remember when you remember Netflix. I mean, this is probably ten years ago. Netflix used to have a three hundred implied volatility before earnings. So if you bought a yeah because yeah. these these huge moves right like uh, you could look at some of the like uh, Coinbase for example right much higher implied volatility going into earnings it's like one hundred thirty percent implied volatility these days right because of the whole just we don't even want to open the crypto uh, uh, Pandora box for you Derek but Coinbase is a company that has ties to the value of Bitcoin right we all understand that 
So, uh, yeah, so you can certainly find stocks that have a high implied volatility and have enough volume that they're tradable. They're not, you know, kind of really obscure uh, tickers, right? Um, that is definitely one of the ones. Netflix, like you said, historically has a has had a higher implied volatility. Um, I just, for the heck of it, Derek, because we've talked a lot about AI on this program before, you know, and I look at the, uh, you know, C3 AI company, ticker AI, it's got an implied volatility of in the mid 60s, right? But when you look historically where it has gone, it has been as high as 200% as recently as May. Right. So there are just times where actually it was a 200 percent in May. It was 180 percent in February. Today, it's only at 65. Right. So I think that also helps us that that lines up with the whole thing that we were talking about before, that the volatility of the market right now is fairly low. Even the high fly volatility tickers have a lower volatility right now than their, you know, than their average over the last year. Uh, I'll tell you one quick story. You, Marty Kearney uh, was an instructor for the CBOE, and Marty and I did a lot of events where I would talk. You know, this is back in the Ameritrade days, and and you were there too. A lot of those as well. You know, you'd be up talking as well. So we do a bit, but Marty would do a bit, and he would tell this great story of someone had. I think it was before he was with the CBO, he was on a trading desk, and somebody called in and said, "I have like the trade of a lifetime. I I can't lose on this." He said, "Oh, I'm, I'm interested in this one." The guy says, yeah, Canadian dollar, I'm selling the at-the-money strata, which means you sell a call and you sell a put. He's like, would you look at the, the premium on these? This is unbelievable. And Marty, the way Marty tells a story, uh, says, uh, just silent for a second, he said, you know, there's a, there's a little election tomorrow, right? Uh, what do you mean, election? He goes, yeah, uh, tomorrow they're, uh, they're going to decide whether Quebec secedes from Canada. I think the implied volatilities on those options were something like, you know, 300%. So there's a reason why the, the premiums are so high, because the market was forecasting a big move. But sometimes, there, you know, there's no free lunch, right, Jay? No, definitely no free lunch. I, you know, that reminds me of uh, the Brexit vote. Oh, right? yeah. Remember that? Yeah. In, uh, right? So so I remember seeing it was June and I remember us trading some option, one of our option strategies. And um, there was this tremendous spike in, you know, vol implied volatility going into that election. And while everyone was like, no, they're never going to leave the EU. Right. It was kind of a wild, like, you know, just maybe like you would see the risk of that. Uh, or the potential volatility of the market movement as a result of that, you know, going in a way that nobody expected. And you would see, we saw that in the options market. And then, you know, that next week after they actually did vote to leave the EU, uh, it was, it was, it was a slightly interesting time in the market. Like the U S markets didn't do too. I think it was probably like maybe a three, four 5% move, nothing dramatic, but I remember seeing it for that. Uh, I'll do it. I'll give you another example. There was an election in Georgia in 2021 for two senators. Do you remember this? How this was to determine uh, who was going to control the Senate, right? And we saw implied volatilities spike going in that day. Uh, even last year in November of 2022, going right into a CPI report, it was rumored that it was going to be, you know, a really good CPI report. The implied volatility in the options said the market's going to move 6% tomorrow, right? That's what the options market was predicting. And I remember all of us going, I mean, even if it's good, how good is it really going to move? Guess what? The market moved over 5%. The NASDAQ moved 7% that day. So you definitely will see like news-driven events reflected in the options market because like you said there's no free lunch you want to take a bet on a you know binary outcome in the in the market the options are a tool people use for that and uh you know just realize it's going to be priced so uh the way that a lot of dollars are pricing it that is the beauty of the market right the if if something's underpriced it is you know fair market ends up bringing it right back into the right range and uh you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, like you said, no free lunch. The options market don't the option market prices don't spike for no reason at all. There's something lurking. And if you're not sure what it is, then you're missing. 
We could tell stories about the implied volatility. I was going to tell one about Martha Stewart when she was waiting to be sentenced. I remember the implied volatility on her company. But uh, by the way, Jay, I, Tesla, you know, you and I are not a fundamental analyst. And I, you always hear me say this too. Of course, I can read financials. I can do the ratios. I can do discounted cash flows and valuation, all that stuff. But there's a difference between someone who's an analyst and someone who is just interpreting other people's data. The analysts are the ones making decisions, making judgments, making forecasts and things like that. But as, as we were doing, talking about Tesla, um, and, and again, this is, uh, I've, you know, I don't know where Tesla's going to go, but does this look right, Jay, that they only have about $1.2 billion or $1.5 billion of debt? I guess they. Yeah. uh, Yes. Which was a little surprising considering a lot of the other uh, automakers. Right. Uh, And it looks like it's, by the way, mostly not even just a bond. It looks like it's mostly secured loans. That is really interesting. Now, they had some converts. Convertible bonds are where the benefit for a company is it's usually a lower interest rate. Uh, The drawback, if you can call it that, is they convert into shares at some ratio. And so equity shareholders get diluted. And when when Tesla's price went up, I think they a lot of those bonds got converted. I don't remember. But yeah, I mean, like I pulled up Ford. And, and why Ford, I don't know, was the first one that came to mind. They have a hundred and I'll just round up about $145 billion worth of debt. And what's interesting about them is their market cap is only $49 billion. So if you think about of the, the enterprise value, which is your debt plus your equity, their, their equity market cap, their stock market cap, is only 25% of the, the total, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what e- either of those companies are going to do. And, uh, but it, it reminds me, too, of, Jay, you know, a lot of value investors are always trying to pick really, really cheap stuff. and. You know, they would probably sell Tesla and buy Ford or vice versa. You know, again, I don't, I don't know what these companies going to do, but that's that's two very different pictures, Jay, to these two companies. Yeah, no, no, I, yeah, I'm with you, and uh, we are not fundamental no. analysts. I am definitely not. Right, so you know, I just know debt usually means you make less money when you have a lot of debt. Right, so <laughs> there you go. That's the level of my fundamental analysis. But I, I think it's interesting to look at how the market prices those two. Of course, I think there's a bigger Tesla's a weird one, uh, a unique one, I should say, because it has kind of the uh, uh, the almost religious following in the belief of the founder. Right. There is a personality behind that stock. I don't know if anybody's really, you know, psyched up, at, you know, for Ford because of, uh, you know, is it is he like the fourth generation, Ford, fifth generation? Ford I don't know. Running Do they still it? Own? I, I don't I actually don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, there's not, you know, that, that following isn't there, right. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, and then, you know, Tesla's a little diversified, right. With the, with the solar panels and stuff like that. So maybe it's a little different there too, but I, I look, I think there's just so much more speculation and you see that in the PE ratios and stuff like that, which you and I have always talked about as a broader way of assessing if the market's expensive or not. By the way, that is the other, to me, the other emotional data point you can point to. Right. If the market's greedy or fearful based on that P.E. ratio, that's price to earnings ratio. And that's we've covered that many, many times. We don't need to. That's probably a whole nother show there, Derek. But when I say when I said originally, there's two like emotional data points. It's implied volatility to me and the P.E. ratio of the market are the things that tell us how fearful or greedy investors are. By the way, Jay, I just I was curious. Uh, two things on on. I don't want to turn this into like a Ford and Tesla podcast, but it's interesting. One is uh, on the debt, and I uh, this is as of the end of the year, and uh, this is stock analysis on net online. I'm I'm reading this, but it looks like the weighted average interest on their debt is only three point eight four percent. So it would be interesting to look and see when that bond matures because. Uh, I think they're still, are they still junk below triple B? I'd have to look on that. I, again, we didn't plan on doing this, but surprisingly, I thought Ford's implied volatility would be lower. It's 32% right now, Jay. I don't know why that surprises me, but I guess the market expects it to move. 
Uh, because you think of Ford as kind of this, you know, dowdy stock, right? As this, oh, it's Ford. They've been around forever. It's the stock price is about 12 bucks. By the way, down from 15, just uh, when was it at 15? It was at 15 in July, beginning of July, right? So, you know, it's fairly 20% drop from there. It's implied volatility. While it is 32, Derek, you know, it's down from, you know, in the middle of March, it was in the 40s, 45. So, yeah, but Ford's a weird one, right, With the for, from an options perspective, because the price is so low, right, at 12 bucks, right? We typically stay away from options on low price stocks like that because uh, there's usually not a lot of strikes, right? You can't fine tune where you want to take your risk, which is one of the great benefits of options. But for Ford, you know, they got half strikes, right? So you could do the 12, 12 and a half, 13, 13 and a half. So you can kind of still, you know, narrow in there. But, you know, they're still 4% apart, right? So, you know, if you're really looking for, you know, moves and trying to take a position in Ford, you have to sometimes be careful. By the way, that's only in like the weeklies. You look at the monthlies, it's one, you know, point, which is more like six or 7% apart. So, sorry, eight, actually. So, uh Interesting, right? I think the IV is higher than you thought. Maybe the recent decline uh, had something to do with it, even though the volatility has been on the decline, uh, like the rest of the market. But, you know, beginning of the year, middle of the year, 45 volatility on uh, on Ford, which happens to be the current volatility of Tesla. Yeah. Um, so a 32 vol, you say, you know, the rule of 16, you'd expect a 2% move and Friday, the stock was up 2.84%. So it's, it's actual volatility exceeded the options market expectation. And it happens. There you go. All so the, the options were cheap. Yeah. We're cheap going into that. Thing, they were cheap. Right? The one I bet there, there were zero DTs, right? Cause we had Friday expiration. So if you bought that uh, Thursday night or Friday morning, you should have been paid greater than the risk you took. All right. Well, we'll uh, I'll dig into the Ford debt situation and the implied volatility and all that. Uh, maybe never, but uh, maybe I will look at that. It's just so the debt side is is really fascinating to me, and it goes to the whole when companies have to refinance, what do they refinance at? But anyway, there's plenty of people doing fundamental analysis uh, way better than I will do it. And again, I always say I can. I can take someone else's data and, and interpolate it and, and do a lot of stuff, but uh, I am not a fundamental analysis person. Um, by the way, Jay, as we go to recommendations, did you see, and I don't know if I'm, I'm happy about this or excited about any of these, there's some docudramas, there's some movies about the GameStop thing that are going to be coming out. I don't know that I like this. I don't know if it's going to tell the accurate story. Have you seen some of these? Well, I guess we'll find out. I didn't see who the producers were. I have seen, is it called uh, Dumb Money? Is that what it is? Is that the name of it? I think it's Dumb Money, yeah. Dumb Money, yeah. Obviously, we're going to have to watch that. We lived that. It's always fun to go watch something you lived through. And you're like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. I remember when that guy started posting memes. I remember. Who knows what's going to, I don't know exactly. It looks like it's following the story of somebody who was kind of uh, trading it. Right, I think uh, day in and day on they show the money they make. The deep value guy with the headband, who who played yeah. basement analyst. You know, I mean, yeah, um, yep. was he right? Can I just yeah, say I think this? Though? Can can yeah, I yeah. can I say this though? Like people have said, oh yeah, that person was right. I don't think they were. Weren't they saying that GameStop was going to wind up being profitable and everything? I'm just I pull up their quick. Uh, their net income. Oh no, they, they were definitely not right. It was pump. It was pump, pump, pump. Yeah, right. It was, it was pump and dump. Yeah. It was the old, yeah. I mean, it was the old, uh, bulletin board. Uh, everybody get, you know, get your, I mean, it's just, it's the modern version of that where you create a, you know, a public frenzy on a stock and people could see the potential, uh, profit. They, oh, if I'd only bought it yesterday, it was up a hundred percent today, right? Those kinds of things, uh, get people chasing it. And then you get some, you know, when that happens, I am always leery of the fundamental reasons, right? We all knew it was a short squeeze, and we've done podcasts about short squeezes before. I'm sure we're going to learn a little bit. Oh, link to those. Thanks, Jay, for reminding me. Yeah, we'll link to those. Yes, please link to the short squeeze uh, podcast. The GameStop one, one, yeah. 
But I'm, I'm looking yeah. at their net income. It's like, okay, minus 313 million. I think this is millions. Uh, ending January 31st to 23, minus 381 million. I mean, they've lost money every year. So no, he wasn't right. He wasn't right. I don't know. In no, the- no, no. But look, Seth Rogen's in it. Pete Davidson's in it. That should be fun to watch. Maybe. I don't know. I think some of these movies, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all right, Jay, any, any recommendations for this week? So I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, I guess on Netflix, uh, uh, the big short was, I guess they're, they're carrying that movie this month or next month and, and, uh, for the next few months. So a lot of people have watched that. If you haven't watched the big short, I, uh, I rewatched it again. Uh, it's, it still holds. It's great. I love, uh, I know we've talked about it before here. But uh, I'm back on it. If you haven't watched it, it's still on Netflix. That's uh, that one. That one, you know, always a winner for me to watch. Well, since you mentioned that one, I did a, and believe it or not, Jay, it's one of the the highest downloaded episodes I've ever done. And I did it probably three years ago. And I did it on the big short. And what I did was it sort of meant it as a companion podcast where I explained credit default swaps. Like I explained the stuff they were talking about just in more detail. So I'll, I'll link to that. But Jay, no, I love the big short. You think you explain the credit default swaps better than Margot Robbie in a bathtub with champagne, which is funny that they took that approach. Uh, as good. You're going to put yourself in that. But different. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Me and Margot Robbie are <laughs> definitely on par there, I think is the, uh, so I'll, I'll link Hilarious. to that. I love, I love the movie though. I mean, but Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, I don't know if that was their first movie together, but they have the biggest movie of the year right now with Barbie. So there you not, go. I've yet to see it. Not going to see that. You've seen it three times. No, right? I've not seen that, Jay. No. I've not seen it. Not three time. times? Oh, so not my once. mistake. Not once. <laughs> <laughs> not once. You know, the my only problem with The Big Short, and the book was really good too. Michael Lewis wrote that book, of course, um, is that I think it it tries to – it definitely sensationalized, not the right word, but I think it causes a lot of armchair investors to try and pick the next big bottom or top and things like that. And there's so many people did. I mean, Michael Burry was wrong and bleeding money on his, on his, uh, his swaps for a while. Yeah, all of them were wrong, right? All of them bled for a long yeah. time, right? All as there's three or four investing groups. They all felt the pain of being early, and even though you were right, you still didn't get paid until the very end, right? Until the big banks got on your side of the trade, which, you know, I'm, I, I didn't, I don't take it that it sensationalized it, but may, maybe I got you, Derek. Like if you could fight through the pain and stick to your convictions, you'll get paid. There's a phrase you and I use all the time, right? The market has the ability to be irrational longer than you have the ability to be solvent. and uh, you know, in all for all of those scenarios in that movie, I mean, the the market tried to break all of them. I'm sure it didn't highlight the ones that it did break that ended up getting on that trade and just couldn't withstand the market being the wrong way. I rem- there's one point in the movie, right, where uh, uh, there was it was countrywide, right? Countrywide goes under, countrywide gets downgraded. Yet the bonds still go up that day. And everyone's going, I don't understand this. We should be making money exactly what we thought would happen. Happen, yet our bonds are moving against us. What the heck, right? It's just the market held it up, right? The market interpreted it a different way that day. They do kind of hint, and I am not a a conspiracy theory. They do kind of hint that all of these kind of private vehicles that were created for these big short bets were being manipulated by the banks that uh, that they formed them with until they could get out of their risk. I don't know how true that is, but uh, it certainly makes for a good movie. But you know, sensationalizing the bet, the speculation against the against the market, it's hard to do. That's the way I always interpret it. Yeah, they're also tough on the rating agencies, and and I agree and disagree on that because if you were running, let's say, uh, historical on the average amount that home loans went down and you did over a very long period, like the probability of those dropping as much as they did was infantile because you had a nice smooth return stream for very many years. So, I mean, maybe it's a problem with the, how they looked at the data. Um, 
you know, of course, Margin Call talks about the value at risk as well. I did an episode on that one too, going through that that movie. But uh, yeah, it's a great movie, and Ryan Gosling was was great in that. Um, our guy from Succession was one of the traders for uh, Steve Carroll's character. By the way, I didn't pick that up until I watched it this time. Really? <laughs> yep, I didn't know until this time. He has that great yeah. scene. I'm not going to repeat what he says, but he says, uh, "I'll buy your swaps. Just tell me how you know I'm getting." getting the short end of the stick and Ryan Gosling tells him, he goes, okay, I'll buy it. I'll buy your swaps. So, all right. Um, I'll link to all that stuff. I have one recommendation. You know, I just watched, uh, breaking bad and El Camino is a movie they did afterwards where it actually tra- It's a two hour movie, which is great. It's not an extra series, but it tracks, uh, what happens to some of the characters afterwards, you know, as series ends, you know, I was like, I wonder what happened to them. So I'd recommend that if you've watched Breaking Bad. But yeah, I'm, I'm in on Breaking Bad now, Jay. So I'm, I'm good. You, I think you should get on board. I think you should start watching it. Okay. All right. I will try. That's it, folks. Uh, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. We'll see everyone next week. Thanks again, Jay. Thanks, Derek.